So we left off a couple weeks ago in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, which is Solomon uh, dedicating the temple. So chapter 5, just quick review, he was, they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. Up to that point, the Ark of the Covenant for... 450, 500 years had been moving from place to place to place to that place. We were talking about noon prayer today, This uh, the privilege of our church going from place to place, even though we stay in the same building on Tuesday night. But there's other churches that go from place to place just because of danger, and, and the church is not a building. Um, it's, it's the people. However, the Lord did tell them before they went into the promised land that he would choose for themselves a place to put his name, to put the tabernacle. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant, inside were the, uh, were, were the two tablets with the Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim and the presence of God. The literal, visual presence of God was there. And uh, it had been going from place to place but the Lord did say, at some point, I'm going to have you have it stay in one place. And so he named Jerusalem a specific place in Jerusalem. They put the Ark of the Covenant there with uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant there. And at the time that they did, it says at the end of chapter 5, the uh, house of God, the temple was filled with a cloud and the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the temple. So then in chapter 6, Solomon, before all the assembly of Israel, all the people of Israel, dedicated this brand new temple. And he says a prayer, which we spent a lot of time, any time. I, I, if I sound like a broken record, I want to be, or a broken file, whatever they call it nowadays. Whenever you see a prayer, study it and pray the same way. So it's a incredible prayer it mentions really seven different things four of them are really crying out for mercy we need mercy because we're sinners and four of the seven prayers are about when Israel sins and they come to you Lord give them mercy Solomon is is praying and so At the beginning of chapter 7, where we begin tonight, it says, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. So we've already seen this once. This is really twice in one day. They brought, brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. The glory of the Lord went, it says, uh, filled inside the temple. It's an important little fact for Tuesday night where we get into detail. But now, just not too long later, the glory of the Lord uh, uh, fills the temple. But the people couldn't see that. Remember, the first time the people are gathered outside, they can't, they don't know what's going on inside the temple. But here, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the burnt offering. The altar for burnt offering is in front 
of the temple, the front of the structure. Uh, it's part of the, I shouldn't say it's, an, it's part of the, the, the altar of burnt sacrifice, it was, um, of sacrifice rather, was uh, part of the temple, but it was outside the enclosed structure. And the, so this time the people get to see the glory of the Lord. And again in verse 2 it says, they could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Remember two chapters earlier it said the, the priests had to stop ministering because of the glory of the Lord. And I tell you, whoever in this room read with us the autobiography of Charles Finney knows something about this, learned something about this. Uh, it, it, was, it was a fabulous book that many men and women in our church read last year. Uh, there would be these times where the glory of the Lord would come into places here in the United States, and it was so thick, everyone had to stop what they were doing and just fall on their face and cry out to God. And, and, and we, we pray on a regular basis for another visitation of God's Spirit where that is happening um, here in Boston. It says, verse 3, when all the children of, of God saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Um, I want revival as much or more than anybody. But when I hear about a revival in certain parts of the country, and they're not describing something like this, I, 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 I don't want to be a Pharisee, I don't want to be a, you know, overly skeptical, but I'm, it's, it's doubtful that it's a real revival unless there is people falling on their face and, and, and just saying, God, you're good, and conversely, and I'm not. <laughs> And so I've heard that there have, have been some things going on in this country from time to time. Oh, there's a revival going on in this place, and, and, and it's a revival of worship where people just don't stop worshiping. Um, they're, they're singing and singing and singing. But there's, there doesn't seem to be a visual display of repentance, of repentance. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what repentance means. But it, it really is a place where you it, repentance is... Uh, if, 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 if revival is real, the Holy Spirit is coming upon a person, or in a revival, actually it's a whole community, and there's repentance where they're like, okay, we realize, we get it now, we're not good, and you are. For He is good, it says in verse 3, and His mercy endures forever. Verse 4, then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of, of God. And the priests attended to their services. The Levites also with instruments of the music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever." Whenever David offered praise by their ministry, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord 
For there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. So, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep in verse 5. That is a big barbecue. I've been to some big barbecues. This one's bigger than all of them by about a thousand, multiple thousand. And uh, they were celebrating the, 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 the opening of the temple here. And you may say, well, we better call the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. I mean, what's going on here? Uh, well, what was happening here? It says there's burn offerings, which is the whole animal is consumed. But the, most of them, it appears, were peace offerings. Now, peace offerings is, is part or most of the animal is being eaten by those people. That's why it says all Israel stood there. That's, he was basically giving uh, lamb chops and beef tips to how, probably hundreds of thousands of, of people there. This is an enormous, enormous national celebration. So it's not like they're just killing animals and no one's eating them. This is uh, the peace offerings. If you look in Leviticus, we were there once upon a time uh, that uh, the peace offering, for example, a sheep was offered to the Lord, but then the priest took part of it for an offering to the Lord, and then he gave the rest to the offerer. So it was a way of koinonia, fellowship with the Lord. You're actually eating, in a sense, with the Lord. It's a time of communion with the Lord when you're, when you're sharing the meal together with them. And I tell you, it's a, it, you know, our meals, uh, would, it, would, would that it be that we're, when we eat, we're, we're really doing the same thing in a way because what we're eating was given to us by the Lord. And it's a good time. Anytime you eat, it's a good time to just fellowship with the Lord. It's a good time to do that. It's interesting here. Now we're going to take sort of, we're going to go into, into to more detail here in verse 7. I don't know if you caught this, but it says that in this verse, it says, furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he uh, offered burnt offerings because the bronze altar which he made was not able to receive the burnt offerings. In other words, there was just too many lambs that had to be offered. There was too much cattle that had to be offered to the Lord. And uh, there was a place basically in the law of Moses. It would have been in Exodus or Numbers where, or Leviticus where you were required by law to offer the sacrifices to the Lord in, in, in one place. It was on the bronze altar. It was the altar of sacrifice. That was a law. However, it's a ceremonial law as opposed to a moral law. What's a moral law? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not covet. 
That's a moral law. A ceremonial law is when you make a sacrifice, you need to do it on this altar. There's no morality associated with it. And, and, And so, where am I going with that? A moral law cannot be changed, ever. Meaning, you shall not covet. There's no exceptions to that, ever. (laughs) However, a ceremonial law can be changed. It's changed right here, right? He adds an exception in verse 7. You can't use the the, the altar sacrifice because there's there's 300,000 people here. And, um, and I got 22,000 bulls <laughs> that have to be sacrificed. So they open up another area. Why is this important? Because among other things, the Bible says that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he fulfilled all the ceremonial law. That, because we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to go to Jerusalem three times a year for a feast. We don't have to keep kosher. We're allowed to eat lobster, lobster, up here in New England. We're allowed to do that, um, which was prohibited by the Jews. All the ceremonial law was fulfilled by Christ. He, he, he performed it literally and perfectly. The moral law doesn't change. So if you ever get a person, and eventually you will, well, you know, how come you're not obeying the whole Bible? You know, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you guys uh, observing, uh, you know, it says that you're, if you curse your parents, you're supposed to be put to death. Why aren't you doing that? Uh, the, 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 a sentencing guideline, like a penalty, that's not a moral law. Cursing your parents is a moral law, so that's still, that, that carries over into the New Testament. What you do to a person who curses parents, that's more of a, a ceremonial or, or a law regarding what I would call sentencing. It in itself is not moral. You can, uh, it, what the exactly a sentence is for a particular violation is not a moral law. So eventually, you're going to get someone bringing up this point, and what you say is only the moral law was carried over into the New Testament. Everyone with me? There's another example, by the way, in Numbers chapter 9, where the Passover in the Old Testament um, was required to be on the 14th day of the first month. It was a law. However, there was an exception made where uh, there was an exception made where if someone touched an unclean thing like a dead body and they couldn't go into the assembly and celebrate Passover, they let them do the next month. But there's never an exception for a moral law. It's only for ceremonial law. What's another famous one that Jesus quoted? Question time. Someone other than Freddie. <laughs> Jesus quoted another one. <laughs> I'll let Freddie have a chance if no one gets it. When uh, Jesus actually mentions it, when he's talking about the Sabbath, where somewhere in the Old Testament, a ceremonial law or a a, a law that was not moral was violated and it was okay. Anyone remember what Jesus said? Am I going to have to turn to Freddie? What's that? The Last Supper? Oh, I'm not sure. That may be. I'm not sure. Cleveland, do you have it? 
Did someone else raise their hand back there? He is the Sabbath. That's an interesting one. People can debate that one. But that's not what I'm... Um, there's another one that's very specific. On the Sabbath, they, they were uh, eating on the Sabbath. And they... What's that? Manuel. <laughs> right, exactly. Manuel. Wow, very good. So when he... I, I believe it was when they were... They were eating on the Sabbath because they were hungry and, and the Pharisees and the religious people were getting all upset. They're working on the Sabbath because they're, they, were, they, they were, I think it was when they were grinding the wheat kernels in their hands in order to, uh, they were picking wheat from the field and grinding them and they considered that um, work. And so, come on, they're on the Sabbath. Even though you're hungry, you need to starve to death, said the Pharisees. I believe that's where it was. And Jesus pointed out to them, do you not remember in the Old Testament when David came to the, uh, uh, to the priests and they, they were hungry, uh, that the, the priest took the showbread that was inside the, the most holy, uh, uh, not the most holy, but the holy place in the temple or the tabernacle and gave it to David? That was a ceremonial law that only the priests were allowed to eat that bread. And so, uh, again, the Lord's gracious. He's merciful on uh, the people. The, 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 uh, in many of these laws, as Jesus says, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, and, and so... Uh, That's a good point, Freddie. And, and Jesus added at that time that every single Sabbath, the priests are um, violating the Sabbath because um, they are working on the Sabbath. Someone brought that up with me one time. Like, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't obey the Sabbath. You're working all Sunday, <laughs> which is our Sabbath. Uh, but it's still a, a day of, of, of consecration for me to the Lord. I... I I really consider it a day of rest even though I'm working all day and I, I, I don't do certain things even on Sunday afternoon just because it's my Sabbath day. And so that's what we do on Tuesday night. We take a deeper dive into some of these things. Verse 8, it says, At that time Solomon kept the feast seven days, so I believe that's the Feast of Tabernacle, and all Israel with them, a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. So this is for... I don't know how many miles that is, but that's a lot of different miles. This, this, this barbecue stretched for miles and miles and miles and miles. And on the eighth day, they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and, of the, and the feast seven days. So there was the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days, and then there was this gigantic barbecue to dedicate the temple for seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. You know, I can't say this enough because it's very important. Joy is a barometer of where you are with the Lord. If you don't have joy, something's wrong and you need to go to God and seek him until you get the joy. That may take more than an hour, it may take more than a day, it may take more than a week, it may even take more than a month, although um, you know, I'm a little skeptical that you're really seeking the Lord if it takes more than a month for you to experience peace and joy. 
Philippians chapter 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So something's wrong. And I can't tell you that every day I'm joyful. But I can tell you anytime I'm not, I don't have joy, I seek the Lord. Lord, what's, there's something wrong. I'm not believing in a promise. I'm not, uh, I'm, I, I'm not being um, obedient um, to you in some sense. Search my heart, examine me. What's going on? And, and eventually, the Lord will, will expose it to you. He'll, he will let you know. But it, it's not, again, it's not always in a day. It's not always in a week. But um, it, it says that he, he sent the people away. They're joyful and glad of heart um, that the Lord, what the Lord had done for David. At this point, I'd just like to make this observation. This was at enormous time of celebration, an incredible encounter with the Lord. Be wary of ministries or churches that they sort of have the philosophy that every single Sunday there has to be some new miracle, some new exciting phenomena that people see, some fireworks at the church service. This is a, a very unfortunate occurrence in some circles in the body of Christ. That every single uh, Sunday there's got to be a miracle in the sense a miraculous healing or, or, um, uh, or, or some kind of manifestation physically of the Lord or uh, someone gets up and tells a vision that they saw every single church service. This is nowhere taught in the Bible that this happens at every church service. Most of life, God wants us to be faithful just in the normalcy of life. And now that doesn't mean that every Sunday morning you can't have an encounter with God, because you absolutely can. Anytime the word goes forth, you can have a great encounter with the Lord that brings you, that, 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 that brings you joy or, or brings you conviction or something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this kind of occurrence. It says that fire came down and burned up the, sacri the sacrifices. So here's my, here's my experience with folks who go to these kind of churches. And by all means, I'm not saying we're a perfect church because we're not. And I don't mean at all to be pointing fingers. But I have seen time and time again that these churches, they, 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 they gather, they stir up a lot of excitement. But each Sunday there's pressure to duplicate what they did the previous Sunday and then the next Sunday after that, there's pressure to duplicate what, and then, and then it just turns into a charade. And then, but eventually, people need something more. They need the solid food of the Word of God. That, that's why church service to church service, we try to just emphasize the Word and prayer. And if the Lord wants to show up with a vision, we're having, I think we're having next week, we're having a Friday Friday night communion where people offer gifts to the Lord and they, uh, someone may come up here and, and, and share something incredibly supernatural or something supernatural may uh, come to the service. Praise the Lord if it does. But if you notice in the, the, the Bible, these kind of occurrences, they are, they're not happening every week. 
They're not even happening every year. <laughs> you know, but they happen from time to time, though, where the Lord shows up in an extraordinary way. And again, doesn't mean for a second, I'm not saying that every time you, 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 you go to church, you can't have an encounter where there's a deep conviction of the Word of God or deep, deep joy. But he says he sent them away at that time. Verse 11 said, Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Solomon successfully, successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. So we know from 1 Kings chapter 9 that the temple, it took seven years to, do, to complete the temple, and it took 13 years to complete his own house. And some people say, hmm, that raises some questions there. <laughs> Why is more time spent building his own house? Uh, because there were certainly, pro there were certainly problems with Solomon later, more in that in a little bit. But uh, uh, verse 12, it goes back to the time after the seven-year period where it says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven, so again, just so you guys understand, remember in the previous chapter, he had prayed at the dedication ceremony of the temple. They had had this huge barbecue, and then, verse 12, the Lord appears to Solomon. That's what's going on. That's the order here. And he tells him, verse 13, when I shut up heaven, meaning no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, I Google sometime what a locust, uh, a, a, a locust infestation looks like. There's like hundreds of millions of locusts. The, the sky looks completely um, dark, and they come in and they just destroy everything um, in, in their path. Or send pestilence among my people, uh, like uh, pandemics, uh, that kind of thing. Verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will, number one, humble themselves, two, pray, three, seek my face, four, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. And so there we have a teaching just which this is a very, very commonly, verse 14, very, very oft-quoted verse here. on what to do when the life of a nation is falling apart or the, the life of an individual is falling apart. It's number one is to humble, humble yourself. And we got a problem with pride, I got to tell you. We have a pride issue. And a pride, um, the opposite of pride is humility. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Also, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humbling yourself is just going before the Lord and basically saying, okay, I give up. I, I, 
I don't, I don't know anything. You know everything. Show me what's going on with my life, Lord. Today at noon prayer, we were praying part of Keith's sermon, which was Revelation chapter 3, is it verse 2 or 3, where the church of Sardis says, you have the name as if you're alive, but you're dead. And so we were just praying, Lord, and, and, and this is a, this is a, this, you want to know what it means to, to, if you will humble yourselves, just go before the Lord and say, Lord, I thought I was alive, but would you show me if I'm really dead? You, I, I thought I had a name, I have, is it, could it be true, Lord, that I have a name of being alive, but I'm dead? Now, if I hear someone say, oh, I know, I know that's not me, that's not humility. <laughs> Every Christian should have the humility to go and to hear a verse like that saying, well, I don't think I'm dead, but Lord, am I alive? Do I look alive, but I'm really dead? That's humility. And that's the first part of the instruction here in verse 14, to humble themselves. Lord, just show me. I need you. Show me what's wrong. Number two is to pray and just call out to, to them. Humility really is an act of the heart, right? But you have to say something to the Lord. And number three is to seek the Lord. There is, as we've talked about many times in the last six weeks, you can pray to the Lord, but not really seek the Lord. And what do I mean, what's an example of that? Well, you know, I can pray, you know, Lord, uh, give me wisdom, Lord. Um, Lord, uh, I, I pray for you know, Aunt Mary, that she would be saved. Um, Lord, uh, I am having problems with work, and, and would you resolve those problems? That's, that's more like prayer, but seeking the Lord is going before him and crying out with your heart and saying, oh God, show me, show me, Lord, just the, the deepest areas of my heart, Lord, that need correction. Show it to me, Lord, and also show me what to do. What do I do about it, Lord? What specifically am I supposed to do? Well, you can pray and not seek, but you can all, this, this also says it's possible to humble yourself, pray, and even seek, but you, can, but you could still be lacking because you don't do anything about what you hear. The Latin, number four here is, is, it says, and turn from their wicked ways. This happens. <laughs> that someone humbles themselves, they pray, they seek, but then that when they find out what the Lord wants them to do, they don't do it. Where's an example of that in the New Testament? Who was someone in the New Testament who did that, who sought the Lord? And then when he was told what he should do, he didn't do it. The young, rich ruler, the rich, young ruler. That's right. He went to the Lord. He sought the Lord. I think he even kneeled, didn't he? Didn't he fall down on the ground? He was seeking God. And then the Lord said, what? He said, what good, what, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and, and um, he recited, the, the Lord recited the... Uh, Jesus recited the, the law, and he said, all these things I've done. He said, one thing you lack, give up everything you have and come and follow me. 
And the guy turned around and he walked away and he didn't do it. He had great sorrow. I love how it says Jesus loved him. I don't know if we're going to see him in heaven. But it did say that Jesus loved him. But you can pray. You can, you can humble yourself. You can pray. You can seek. That guy humbled himself, didn't he? I mean, he humbled himself. Like rich young rulers. I, th- I also think it says he ran, right? He ran. <laughs> That's not like a dignified thing to do in, in r- circles with real rich people. They don't run to church. They go, you know, nice, prime and proper, you know. <laughs> He ran to Jesus. He got down on his knees. What do I do to seek eternal life? But then when he was told, he refused to do it. And so it's number four is very important. It involves repentance. Repentance means turn away from wherever you're going or whatever you're doing and go to God. And then it says, and, and I will hear from heaven Forgive their sin and heal their land. Verse 15, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now, I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, so he's speaking to Solomon, but he's also speaking to us today. If you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, And if you keep my statutes and judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I have covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them, And this house which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? And then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and embraced other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. And so, he tells them, he tells Solomon personally, look, you and your descendants, you'll be on a throne, this physical throne he was speaking of, forever, if you follow my statutes. But if you turn away, I'll uproot them from my land, and I will send them away, which wound up happening, right? They wound up uh, serving foreign gods. And by the way, if you're thinking a foreign god is just a little statue somewhere, uh, it's much more than that. A foreign god includes money, greed, position. Praise of man is a god. It's an idol. And the second commandment says, don't make for yourself a God and bow down to it. And that's what we're prone to. And that's why we go to the Lord every day. Lord, am I doing that? And so Solomon was gonna have, is going to have a hard ending, but this is, that's the end of the uh, chapter 7, which is the dedication of the temple. Verse 8 gets more into, I mean, chapter 8 gets more into 
uh, his, his reign and establishing, um, establishing his kingdom. So let's go into chapter 8 at this point. Let's go into chapter 8. Let me get the clock here going. It came to pass, chapter 8, 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1. At the end of 20 years, when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house, that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them and he settled the children of Israel there. So, some of you may remember that Solomon had given Hiram 20 or 30 cities, I forget. Hiram was the one who supplied all the cedar, the wood for the temple. He had the, the, expert, uh, the experts on building stuff he sent down to Israel. He was not a Jew. He was a Lebanese person, uh, essentially, modern-day Lebanon from that area. He was, had been friends with David. But it is an unusual story in 1 Kings that Solomon, um, towards the, after the temple was built, he gave um, Hiram uh, a whole bunch of cities in northern Israel. It says that Hiram didn't like them. And so it is believed that Hiram just gave them back. And here in verse 2 of chapter 8 of Second Chronicles, it has Solomon actually building them and settling the children of Israel there. Verse 3, and Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and seized it. And so that's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, Hamath Zobah. And so apparently this, this was an area that uh, had pledged allegiance to David, probably paid taxes to him, took as an opportunity to rebel when David's son came in. So he came up, went up and took it back. Verse 4, he also built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the storage cities which he built in Hamath. He built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. So David was a warrior king. He, he was in war a good part of his reign. Solomon, very, very little, if any. Um, I, I don't even know if uh, verse 3 refers to a war or even a battle. Um, Solomon, his name means peace, and his, his reign, there was peace. And so most of the time, he was using it to sort of strengthen the countries. He built storage cities, storage for uh, a number of things like horses, storage for grain, storage for food, storage for chariots. He built up these places. Verse 4, verse 5 rather. He built upper Beth Horon and lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. Also, Balath, verse 6, and all the storage cities that Solomon had, and all the chariot cities and the cities of the cavalry, and all the sol that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and the, the land of his dominion, all the people who were left of the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites who were not of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy, from these, Solomon raised up forced labor as it is to this day. So, uh, we read about this earlier. In Exodus and in Deuteronomy, the Israelites were told, hey, listen, you're going up to this land of Canaan. Remember, they were in Egypt. 
in slavery. Moses delivers them from slavery and says, God says through Moses to Israel, listen, you're going to go up to this land. In this land, there's these peoples. Their names are uh, the Amorites, the uh, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites. You're going to destroy all of them. You're going to... You're going to destroy all of them, um, and if you don't, they'll wind up being a snare. Well, we saw in the book of Joshua, they didn't. They didn't obey, and instead, the people, there were people left in the land, although those people wound up being servants of the land. It says here, Solomon took these people and required they do forced labor. Now, this was a little, this wasn't really slavery in the sense that we saw earlier that they were required to rotate one or two months a year, work for Solomon, the rest they went back to their farms. Um, but they, we'll see later, they're still in the land and they will be a source of great, great, uh, a snare of sin and temptation for Solomon himself because they worshipped other gods, including the god of sex, the god of weather, the God of the mind. And you can't, and, and so you, you, you can't even deal with sin in this way. Well, listen, I'll put it in first force label. I'll, I, I, I will try to deal with it in, in, in some other way other than completely cutting it off and destroying it. It's not going to work. And so it says here in... Uh, In verse 9, it says, Solomon did not make the children of Israel servants for his work. In other words, they were not the ones doing all his building projects. Some were men of war, captains of his officers, captains of his chariots, and his cavalry, meaning they went, they became warriors. And other were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250, who ruled over the people. A little water down here. So verse 11, we're going to spend some time on this one because this is, uh, Solomon's going to, he's going to fall big time. Oh my. And so here you see the very beginning of the problem. Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, the king of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Now, if you're reading that, you should be like, whoa, what's up with that? Why can't Solomon's wife live near the temple? Because she was not a believer in Jehovah. She worshipped foreign gods. It's interesting that she's an Egyptian, the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt. And I, I, I want to give you what I think probably happened. So this is the beginning of a long downward fall for Solomon. He married an unbeliever. And here you, you figure out that he, here at the very beginning, he knows it. 
And so he says, you know, I, I really can't have her around close to the holy things. I need to move her away, which means he was sensitive at that time to the things of the Spirit. In Deuteronomy, when the law was being given through Moses, he, he, here's, here's what I believe happened. He's a very clever man, right? He's, he's a very smart man, right? Solomon had been given all that wisdom. In Deuteronomy 7, before the Israelites had come into the land of Israel, it says this. It says, you're supposed to, it says the Lord your God, verse 1, Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall utterly destroy them and utterly conquer them. You shall make no covenant with them or mercy on them, nor shall you make marriages with them. That's what it says. Now, Solomon married a who? An Egyptian. Here's what I think happened. He was like, well, you know, in Deuteronomy, when it talks about women that I'm not supposed to marry, it doesn't say Egyptians. It doesn't say Egyptians. They're not on the list. She's not a Hittite, a Girgashite, an Amorite, a Canaanite, a Perizzite, a Hevite, and a Jebusite. So technically, I can marry her. Romans 16, 19 says this. Be simple as to what is evil. I like 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 20 even, even better. It says um, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 20, ay, ay, ay. Where is it? It says, be infants of evil, or in malice, be like babies. And when a baby sees, or, or, or baby meaning a small child, when a small child sees something that they know is wrong, they don't touch it, right? They're like, whoa, I got to get away from it. But, you know, we grow up and we get smarter and we're like, you know, I know it's evil, but let me try this. Again, Romans 16, 19, be, innocent, be simple as to what's evil, meaning don't try to finagle some kind of thing where you're, you're, you're doing what you're not supposed to do, but there's like an appearance that maybe it's not so bad. And if you've never done that, you're lying. <laughs> We've all done that. I'm, I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't say that. I certainly have. We've all seen something. We've all seen something that we knew was wrong. Well, you know, technically, technically, she's an Egyptian. She's not an Amorite, a Perizzite, a Hivite, a Gershite. 
before it's all over, Solomon would be marrying women from like almost all his nations. In fact, he's going to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he's going to be drawn into evil by them. They're going to draw him into evil. He's going to be sacrificing his own children. Burning them. Romans 16, 19 says, be excellent at what is good. But be innocent of evil. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, in malice or evil, be like babes, but in understanding, be mature. Be mature, be wise. So important that we so important that we understand that because this, there's going to be a tragic end here. Verse 12 says this, Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the vestibule. According to the daily rate of offering, according to the commandments of Moses for the Sabbath, the new moons, the three appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. In Galatians, where uh, on Sunday morning, Paul goes everywhere preaching grace. You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. People would come behind him and say, oh no, that's not good enough. Yeah, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to obey the feasts. It appears that that's one of the things they were saying. And get circumcised and these other things. They were adding to the cross. We're saved by grace through faith and, that are, that, and even that it's not of ourselves it's the gift of God once you add one law you're going to wind up adding a thousand laws after it we're saved by grace by Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ alone thank God that he fulfilled this feast because you had to travel land and sea in order to get to Jerusalem nevertheless these feasts at the time were times of great joy. The Lord was doing a work. He was slowly preparing people for the time where Jesus Christ would, would fulfill all of it. So they, I, I don't want even slightly to, um, to, to, to suggest these were not good, good things. I mean, these were massive barbecues and wonderful parties. Not as good as Jesus Christ, though. With Jesus Christ, we can have a feast every day. Not just three times a year. Verse 14, and according to the order of David his father, he appointed the, vision, the divisions of priests for their service, the Levites for their duties to praise and serve before the priests as the duty of each day required, and the gatekeepers by their divisions at each gate. For so David, the man of God, had commanded. They did not depart from the command of the king to the priests and Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasuries. Now, all the work of Solomon was well-ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. I could have a whole sermon on this, but please pray for us. Pray, pray for us, please, because there is so much work behind the scene that goes into doing a Sunday morning service and doing this service and then all the ministries of the church. Why do I bring that up? Well, because he's saying it was well-ordered. It was very well-organized. There was organization. When people showed up, there was people ready to serve. 
administration is listed as a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 14 for a reason. It's because it's so needed. So pray for people with that gift to come into our church. We have them, by the way, but we can use the, all that we can get. Verse 17 and 18, Then Solomon went to Ezion, Geber, and Elath on the sea coast of the land of Edom. And Hiram, here's the king and his friend in Lebanon again, sent him ships by the hand of the servants and, and servants who knew the sea. They went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir. That's at one of the places at the very top of, of uh, the Red Sea. The, if you go to the Red Sea, and I think it's the Sea of Aqaba or something like that, you, uh, you, you go to the top, and that's, that, that's the place. So it's to the south. It's not the Mediterranean, it's, which, is, which was to the west. It was down south. It says, and they acquired 450 talents of gold there and brought it to King Solomon. I'm going to end with this. That's an enormous amount of gold. By the way, Freddie, if we, I'd love to have close with a worship song today, but before you guys come up, that is an enormous amount of gold. I don't know how many, I think it's ten, tens of thousands of tons of gold, 450 talents of gold. And it would be, that would too be a source of, of Solomon's downfall. I read this. This is a book that everyone in our ministry team is required to read. If you're on our ministry team and you haven't read it, go to your, the leader of your ministry and ask him or her to read it with you. Do your own little book club with them. On Being a Servant of God by Warren Wiersbe. Uh, I just finished it with Antonio and David of our church. And we just read this. But it says this very interesting thing in, in, in chapter 29. This is Warren Wiersbe. I used to think that money was neutral, that the way we are used money determined whether it was good or evil. So kind of like a computer. A computer is neutral. You can use it for something good. You can use it for something bad. He says he used to think the same way about money. But I've changed my mind. I'm convinced that money is basically evil. What? Say what? He gives a good argument here. He says that only the blessing of God can sanctify it. So if you have money, unless you have God sanctify it, meaning move you in such a way to use it properly... It's going to be evil. It's going to have an evil outcome. Jesus called money unrighteous mammon. That's what he called money. Unrighteous mammon. He called it that. It's not neutral. If you got money, every single bit of it, you need to offer it to the Lord. Lord, please give me a heart to use this correctly. And Solomon goes down and gets 450 talents of gold and then starts, it says in the reign of Solomon, it says in 1 Kings that he made silver just like nothing, like dirt. There was just so much wealth. And it wasn't sanctified because it brought, that too brought down Solomon. That's part of what brought him down in the end. So important to every day have a feast with the Lord. And part of the feast 
bringing your humility. What did we learn? Bringing your humility, praying to him, seeking Lord. Lord, I, 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 you know, is there anything in me? Sometimes they'll say, you're doing great. He'll tell you that. And then if he does tell you something, though, repent. Because we're weak. The sin of Adam, which we have, and Eve, which we have inherited, has, has really done a work in our gene pool, in our DNA. But the Lord has given us grace to come to him every day, receive wisdom, receive love, receive mercy.